Right, our text this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 2. If you could please turn there now. And as often is the case, I'm going to need to start reading from uh, chapter 4, verse 32, because it gives us Paul's whole thought, and not just um, a little part that's dangling in midair. So here we go. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Heavenly Father, we offer these words of yours back to you and we pray that you would make them real in our lives today. In Jesus' name. Therefore, therefore a very important word, one that I want you to ask, I want to ask you to hold on to right through today's message. Why? Well, because it links us to the answer to the question, Why must we walk in love as we are commanded to here in this verse? The answer flows through this word, therefore, and it does so exclusively and uniquely. There is only one way, there is only one answer, and through, therefore, we are reminded that God in Christ forgave you. No? Not him or her sitting three seats across from you, but you. Here, I want you to take your index finger and point it at your chest and say, God in Christ forgave me. God in Christ forgave me. God in Christ forgave me. Why is he so loud? What have I done wrong, you might be saying? Well, Quite a lot, actually, and we'll get to that shortly. But the reason that I have raised my voice is to be absolutely sure that I have your attention. Because this is big. This is huge. This is very important, and I can't allow it to pass by in just a moment. All of you, and me, and potentially every single one of the teeming billions of humans on this planet who have ever lived, and will ever live, have been forgiven and redeemed in Christ. He has wiped out our sins and restored the relationship that we were supposed to have with God. This is the largest single gift ever. How big is it? Well, I'm reminded of a song that we sometimes sing here and it gives us some idea. It's called The Love of God. And I'm sure you know it. The first verse is this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Well, that's the gift that we're talking about, isn't it? And then in verse 3 we try, but... We only try to explain its worth and actually we fail despite using some of the largest measures that we can comprehend. 
Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Our holy and gracious Father has very lovingly done a great and personally sacrificial thing for us. And we should never forget it. Therefore, this is what we need to do. Be imitators of God. And how do we do that? Well, one of the things we do is we walk in love. Because that is how God walks. In our last few sermons on this section of Scripture, we've talked about forgiving one another and being kind to one another. And although it's true and it's wholly appropriate that they do show on the outside, these things speak mostly about heart attitudes, things that live on the inside of our characters. But when we read here about walking, we can understand the instruction that we are supposed to be following is mostly about what we do, our moment-to-moment physical actions. So, what does it mean to walk in love in terms of doing stuff rather than thinking or feeling stuff? For example, are we supposed to walk around with some kind of goofy, holy look on our faces all the time in order to be considered as a good Christian? Thankfully, the short answer is no, although it would be kind of fun to get some of us to try. So, let's do some digging in the text to see what Paul actually means. Well, the word that he uses for walk is the Greek peripateo, from which we get the modern word peripatetic. Well, it sounds very flash, but it just means walking around. And contrary to what you think, it can be a very useful word, peripatetic. Gentlemen, you can try this at home. The next time that you've been somewhere where you probably shouldn't, like admiring the shiny fishing reels, stroke knives, stroke shotguns at hunting and fishing, and the missus asks, what have you been up to? Just say, oh, I've been a bit peripatetic, dear. And hopefully, she will let it go because it sounds kind of technical, like official work stuff. So give it a try the next time you're desperate for an excuse. Anyway, back to peripatetic. Or peripatia, rather. It's, it's literal meaning, just like the modern word is to walk about here and there and to tread all around. However, words often have a broader and unspoken meaning that are best understood by the society that uses them. I mean, you can think about some of the words that are used by teenagers, which us adults really don't get, and teenagers don't like us to use. Likewise, in Paul's time, peripatia was also understood to mean kind of making one's way, to make progress, to make the proper use of one's opportunities, and finally a very general meaning of how you lived and regulated your life. So with this in mind, we can see that we can't understand this reference to walking as a separate activity to, say, sitting or lying down, so that we might be excused for behaving in a different way because we are in a different position. No. What Paul means is that in everything we do and everywhere we go, we should have the same behaviour. We ought to be walking like God in love. 
And this idea is further reinforced when we look at the tense in which this is written, which is a thing called the present imperative. And we've met the present imperative before. It means that what the reader should recognize is that they are expected to continually and habitually follow this command. This isn't a thing just for the moment, but rather a long-term commitment that will make the attitude or action a continuous part of a Christian's normal daily lifestyle. Now, before we can go on to think about what this looks like in practice, we should ask what sort of love is involved here, because as we know, the Greeks were very specific about what they meant, rather than lumping all the expressions of love under one word as we do in English today. Would anybody like to guess what kind of love this is? Agape love, yes. We're very, getting very friendly with agape. And what are the, some of the key elements of agape? Yes, and we're going to come right to those things. Agape is unconditional and sacrificial love. The kind that we understand God to be when we read in 1 John 4 that God is love. So we shouldn't be surprised at all to learn that if we're going to be imitating God's walk, then we're also going to be expected to express love in the same way that he does. Agape is a love which is commanded in believers. Agape is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And agape is activated by the personal choice of our will. And it isn't based on what we might feel towards whoever we are dealing with in the moment. If you'd like a list of what agape in action might look like so that we'd know when we were or weren't acting like it, we don't need to go any further than 1 Corinthians 13, which many of us will know. Love, agape, suffers long and is kind. Agape does not envy. Agape does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Agape never fails. That's a very helpful list, isn't it? It's very clear and we can go straight to it for a comparison against our own actions at any moment. So that we, we will know whether our love looks like or not like God's. So I have only two more words about this list then. Memorize it. Memorize it. There is a reality here though that ought to stop, make us stop and think. If we go back to when Colfane covered the greatest commandments in his sermon on Luke 10, where Jesus says that we are to love our neighbours as ourselves, you might remember that one of the points of application was that this instruction wasn't only for those folk that we liked. It was meant for everyone, whether you thought they were the biggest scumbag on earth or not. Everyone. So here's the thing. When we read here that we are to walk in love, which means continuously living according to the standards of the list that we've just read, we must understand that it's meant in just the same way. We can't be skipping from person to person with whom we have the kind of relationship that makes it dead easy to love them. Instead, we are to treat all people with the same patience and kindness and humility and unselfishness and so on that we've just read about in 1 Corinthians. 
Now. Now we're doing some thinking, I reckon. You might believe that fulfilling the Great Commission, which is given to all believers at the end of the book of Matthew, that says that we are to go and make disciples of all the nations, has mostly to do with screwing up the courage to accost folk on the avenue on Saturday morning to ask if they are saved. And for some Christians, that's just what it is. That's their particular calling. But, what do you think would be the impact of a question like that if the person being asked had a high view of Christians based on the way that they conducted themselves every day? Let's just imagine for a moment that all believers everywhere always walked like God in love. Do you think that there would be much difficulty in promoting the spread of the gospel? Would we be so worried about the spread of secularism and Islam? I think not. I reckon that we'd have a problem building churches fast enough. And that's why these few words, walk like God in agape love, are so very important. We can talk about grace a great deal, but as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. So, what value to love and daily action then? A very great deal of value and undoubtedly a very great victory for the work of the gospel. So, our next question must be, whose hands and feet are in charge of that daily walk? Well, I guess it must be that fellow next door. He's much better than me the worship leader or the pastor or one of the elders must be one of them. No. It's our very own hands and feet and thus our very own responsibility to walk in this desirable way. Paul is very clearly writing here to every single Christian. He hasn't specified anybody at all. Now as I think about the idea of a walk and responsibility and journeys, I'm led to think about tramping. And it's true that it's a long time since I've personally done any serious tramping because I have early Christian plastic knees that go click and clank all the time. But, but I haven't forgotten some of the stuff that's involved and I've seen Sarah and Joe go off on some of these adventures, so I reckon I've got a pretty good idea of what's needed to do things properly. The thing about tramping is that it's clearly extremely foolish to believe that you can roll out of bed one morning and then on the spur of the moment decide to visit the Urawaras for a week armed with just your underpants. It's not going to work, is it? No. To safely and completely complete a tramp, I'm going to need to do a whole bunch of things before I set off, and I'm also going to need a small mountain of gear. So, let's see what I've got here. Well, we've got some boots. We've got some gear for when it's raining really hard and it's cold and then we've got some gear for maybe when it's just raining a little bit and you don't want to get too hot and we've got some clean dry socks and we've got a sleeping bag and we've got a sleeping roll and we've got a tent. Oh, it's all falling off the table now, there's so much. And we've got a map so we know where we're going. And we've got a personal locator beacon and we've got a headlight and we've got a knife and we've got a GPS. Well, 
I'm not going to go on because this is a sermon, not a camping convention, and I can bet, as I've heard already, that you can think of five things that aren't on this pile. Yes, water. Actually, you've made me think about it, Beth, so I'm going to have some now. There we go. Right. We all agree that it's very important to make sure that we are properly prepared before we go camping. Good. That's excellent. It's very wise. So, why don't we take the same care in the journey through our Christian lives? The thing is that trying to move through the rugged country of somewhere like the Urawera safely is difficult enough. But at least there is no one actively trying to push you over the cliff. But in our daily Christian lives there is. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, yes. He has the certain intention of hurling us over the edge. He's just aching to do it. And your undies aren't going to cut it against him, are they? No. And to make our lack of preparedness even more foolish, it's not as though there isn't the spiritual equivalent of a camping shop near to hand either. Where is it? Well, it's right here in Ephesians chapter 6. Take up the whole armour of God. Breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet and sword. They're all right here. And every single one is free. No charge. Every single one is guaranteed Top quality, made in heaven, no defects guaranteed for eternity by the creator of the universe. So, why wouldn't we spend some time to use them? If we're going to walk like God, then we need to recognize that we do so like. Like and not as. We are only like God. We are not Him, so we must use the things that He offers to protect ourselves. We may set off with the very best intentions, but we are created flesh, not holy and sovereign Lord. Satan does not tremble before men. And if we do not make these first steps of preparation, it is certain that we will fail and fail and fail again to look anything like our Heavenly Father. So please, it's really important to make sure that you do go to that camping store before you go out walking again. If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? That's from Jeremiah 12. Be prepared or prepare to fail. Let's carry on now with the rest of the verse. Paul has written here that we are to walk in love. Okay, we've talked quite a lot about that, but there's one thing that we haven't covered, and that's the matter of accuracy. How will we know that our imitation of God in the matter of walking in love is genuine and accurate? That we are doing a good job. Well, the answer lies in the balance of the verse. If we're looking for a reference point or an example Here it is. Walk in love 
as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So our example and our standard for this walk is no less than the sacrificial heart of Jesus himself. That's very valuable to us. Within the dramatic arts, there is a group of techniques used by actors to create within themselves the thoughts and feelings of their characters. And unsurprisingly, this results in a much more lifelike performance. It is known as method acting. Classical acting, on the other hand, focuses on developing external talents. In other words, the appearance, but unfortunately without the substance. And I know which one I prefer to watch. Method actors make their character come alive by doing things like recalling their own emotions and sensations during similar circumstances. They ask themselves the question, what would motivate me, the actor, to behave in the way that the character does? Now, I want to very clearly state here that I'm not suggesting that the Christian life is most effectively lived like an actor, pretending to be someone else. Absolutely not. Truth must lie at the very heart of everything we do because the Lord is never glorified or pleased by lies. However, I do think that it's useful and helpful to use that question. And we alter it a little bit just to say, what would motivate me, the Christian, to behave in the way that Christ does? What is the maker's method? Well, I'll, I'll suggest a few real life examples then. I'm driving to do a job in town. But there's somebody in front of me doing 35 k's an hour in a 50 zone. Should I, A, shoot past them and cut in front whilst using special hand signals? Or, B, should I ask myself, what would motivate me, a Christian, to behave in the way that Christ does? I'm at a party with some non-Christian friends and everyone is having a great time. Should I, A, join in, drink 15 beers and smoke a joint? Or B, should I ask, what would motivate me, the Christian, to behave like Christ does? I'm in the supermarket and Nana is having a long conversation with, about tea with another Nana. The aisle is completely blocked. Should I, A, curse them and bash their trolleys out of the way? Or should I ask, what would motivate me, the Christian, to behave in the way that Christ does? I have a hundred dollars spare. Do I, A, buy industrial quantities of coke and chippies and pig out on the couch while watching Rambo 16? Or do I, B, ask, what would motivate me, the Christian, to behave in the way that Christ does? Well, the motivation has to be Jesus' agape love for us, isn't it? Agape love speaks of a love called out of your heart by the preciousness of the one you love, a love that impels you to sacrifice yourself for the benefit of the one you love. It is the love shown at Calvary. And the prototype of this quality of love is the Father's love for sinful men 
as shown by the son's sacrifice on the cross. You see, just knowing what is meant by agape love is not enough. Having it stored up in your head might be intellectually a little interesting and impressive, but it has no transformational or sanctifying quality at all. However, when we start to bring it to life by applying its standards to our own thoughts and actions so that it is shown and lived out in our own lives, then it becomes something very special. It becomes the space in which we show the world while they really do want and need God in a way that is far more convicting and convincing than even the cleverest gospel presentation on the street. Gospel presentation and proclamation is more than just speech. It is life. The truth and power of the gospel ought to be evident in every part of our lives, demonstrated by agape actions and tested against the love that Jesus showed to us on the cross. Now that we are talking about the gospel, we must ask, what is its truth? How does it work? We've just read the answer in full actually, since providentially all of the theological elements are right here in our verse today. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So, firstly, Christ loved us. He loved us even though we had sinned against him and his love wasn't even slightly dimmed by our sin. Let's be specific too. When Paul speaks of us, we shouldn't misunderstand him to mean the fellow next to us because I've done lots of terrible things in my life. No. Those things didn't matter to him. He loved me. Especially me and individually me. And that is true for every me who hears this. Secondly, Christ has given himself. His death was a substitution. Him for me. I had sinned against God. I had broken his laws again and again. I deserved punishment. It should have been me on the cross, but as I stood at its foot trembling, with fear and shame believing I was about to suffer and die, I was gently but firmly pushed aside. There he was. He looked in my eyes and he said, I will do this for you. I'm sorry. Thirdly, Christ was an offering and a sacrifice. There absolutely had to be one. The Jews of Paul's time understood exactly what he was talking about because of the system of the law that they lived with daily. They knew that there was no reconciliation with God and no wiping away of sins without offering and sacrifice. The shedding of blood. In Old Testament times, this was provided through the blood of animals, where the sin of an individual was symbolically transferred to the animal to be sacrificed. And it provided a substitutionary atonement. That's a theological term. Substitutionary just means in place of. Atonement means atonement, a restoration of relationship with God. 
But unfortunately, these animal sacrifices had to be repeated each year because they were from created things, stained by sin. So they were only partially able to atone for sin. However, as the Son of God, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. His blood shed on the cross was the only sacrifice, the only sacrifice that had the power to atone for the sins of every human once and for all. And lastly, the fruit of Christ's sacrifice was a sweet aroma to God. It was it means that it was an acceptable sacrifice that he had made. The only sacrifice, in fact, which could make possible full reconciliation between God and humans. And that reconciliation was desperately needed. Because before Jesus was nailed to that cross, humans had four gigantic problems. We deserve to die as a penalty for our sins. We deserve to bear God's wrath against our sins. We were separated from God by our sins and we were in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. Just one of those is bad news. But all four of them put together are immeasurably worse. A sure sentence of death, in fact. But, but, Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. In the moment of his death, every single one of those problems was dealt to once and for all. The way was now open for those who repent and believe to become one of God's children. That is fantastic. That is excellent. That is marvelous. That is extraordinary. That is wonderful. That is very, very good news indeed. That is the gospel. And that is why we must walk in love. Since if Christ has been so very, very generous to us, then we would have to be so mean indeed to hold on to those things just for ourselves. Therefore, do you remember that I asked you at the beginning to remember that word? Therefore, firstly, Christian, are you walking in love or are you clutching Christ's bounty to yourself? Secondly, Non-Christian, have you done that? Have you repented of your sins and set your belief in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, then you remain with every one of those four problems. And I can assure you that not one of them can be solved without Christ. There is no other way, no number of good deeds, nothing. There is no other way to God. There is no other way out of the predicament of sin. What will you do today? Let us pray. Lord, there is no way 
to adequately thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. You've made it possible for us to go back to our Father who made us and call him Father to approach his throne without fear. Thank you for that. And what can we do in response, Lord, but try to behave in a way that is like you and glorifies you? Lord, I pray that we would we would keep that thought in our hearts. It would be there with us every day as we go about our business and that we would be imitators of you, that we would walk in love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.